Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, June 2nd, 2022. Of course, this week's Torah portion is the Parsha of Amidbar, that Shabbos, which leads immediately Saturday night, Sunday, and Monday for us outside of Israel to Shavuos. So I want to wish everyone a very good Shabbos and Chag Sameach, good Yom Tov. And I'd like to speak with you this evening about Shavuos. Before I do that, just a commercial message. At the moment, I plan to be away on Thursday night, June 16th, and Thursday night, June 30th. Um, as I've learned uh, in my life, uh, nothing is certain and uh, certainly subject to change. But at the moment, those are the two dates that I plan to be away. Also, there are a number of dates I plan to be away in the morning for the 10 at 9, all of the dates that I'm planning to be away are in the email, on our website, in our weekly email, and so uh, and on our Facebook page. So you can check out all those sources to make sure that you have the correct dates. Um, and if they change, of course, I will let you know. If you do receive the daily email from me, that will continue while I'm gone. And if you're not receiving that email and you would like to, please let me know. I present, I send you an email every day, Sunday through Friday, with links to that day's 10 at 9 and on Fridays to the night before Mining the Riches of the Parsha, plus what we discussed in previous years so you can uh, catch up. I want to thank you all for being here. I know it's a busy night. Um, it, it's about to be Shabbos, which is about to be Yom Tov, and I know there are very busy preparing, so I'm tremendously grateful to every one of you for taking the time to be with me tonight to be able to study together. Thank you. I am an American, and I love my country, the United States. There are many things in the United States that worry me, that frighten me, and that keep me up at night. But at least there is this. Last year, a federal appeals court ruled in a lawsuit that was filed by two Jewish prisoners that the meals that they were being served in prison by the Michigan Department of Corrections did not fulfill their kosher dietary needs. And among other things, they testified in court that they had always eaten cheesecake on Shavuos. And the court ruled that they get cheesecake on Shavuos. Their lawyer said, nobody thought you were going to get a judge to order cheesecake. But the judge did. And not only that, the court wrote that religious texts don't say that cheesecake is mandatory, but there is also evidence suggesting that these prisoners do in fact sincerely believe that cheesecake is required on Shavuos. Now, the prosecutor who argued against them pointed out that both of these men could buy cheesecake from the prison commissary, like the canteen, where it was available for sale. <laughs> but both of these men argued that the items sold in the commissary could not satisfy their religious needs because they were only small snacks. <laughs> and the code of Jewish law requires full portions to be eaten at mealtime. I have to say, I certainly agree. There's nothing worse than a small piece of cheesecake. So, at least in prison, on Shavuos, America is the greatest country in the world. Okay, 
On Shavuos, we read Sefer Rus, the book of Ruth. <laughs> there are two people in the book of Ruth who have small roles, small parts, yet their presence helps teach us one of the central lessons of this book, Sefer Rus, the book of Ruth, and one of the central lessons of Shavuos. Now, what I'd like to share with you is partially based on the writing of Rabbi Yosef Zev Lipowitz, who was a deep teacher of Torah in Israel in the previous century, and I am indebted to Rabbi Yitzchak Adlerstein for his presentation of part of this material. The Book of Ruth opens with three women, three widows, walking hand in hand from Moab, which is today Jordan, the eastern bank of the Jordan River. They're walking from Moab to Israel in order to reach Bethlehem, Bethlehem. But these three women are walking for very different reasons. Naomi, who was at the beginning of the story an aristocratic woman, an older woman. She is from Beislechem. That's her home. And years earlier, she had left with her husband and her two sons due to a famine in Israel. So they moved to another area where there was enough food. And as our narrative begins, Naomi is an old broken woman. She's returning home to Bethlehem in defeat. Her husband and her sons have died and she is now impoverished and her reputation is ruined. She is drawn back to Israel to be reconciled with her past. And she knows when she reaches there, she will face embarrassment and poverty. Arpa and Rus were married to Naomi's two sons. And now they too are widows. The two of them, Arpa and Rus, come from royalty in Moab, and they are young women. Now, they could stay. They could return to their families. They could start new families of their own. They could return to the privilege of their upbringing. In Israel, if they accompany Naomi, they will be unwanted strangers facing, with Naomi, poverty. Yet they accompany Naomi, both of them, out of an extraordinary devotion to her. Having seen the chesed, the kindness exhibited by Naomi and her family, this devotion, this chesed, this kindness now comes naturally to them. And so the three of them walk together, determined to share the bleakness of their future in Israel. And then Naomi breaks their silence. Batomer Naomi, Naomi says, to these two younger women, Arpa and Rus, Lechna Shovna, go back to your home. Don't come with me. Go back to your home. Yasa Shemi Machem Chesed, God should bless you for the kindness that you have shown, that even that you wanted to accompany me. Hashem should give you fulfillment and beautiful families of your own. Go home. You don't need to come to me. You don't need to come with me. 
and she kissed them. And the three of them raised their voices and cried. Vatomarna and both of these women, both Arpa and Rus, respond to Naomi and they say, we're going with you. We are not going home. We are not going to leave you. We are going with you back to Israel. We know what we're going to face. And both of us, Arpa and Rus, we're devoted to you. We're coming with you. We're going together. Vatomer Nami, and Nami says back to them, Shovna Benosai, my daughters, return to your families. Notice here, Benosai, my daughters. Well, they're not her daughters. They're not even her daughters-in-law anymore, technically, because what connected them, their husbands, Naomi's sons, have died. But here she refers to them for the first time as my daughters, Benosai, my daughters. This expression of closeness, of endearment. And she's expressing how much I love you, I care for you, but don't come with me. Go back to your home. But they both insist, Arpa and Rus. And they both say, we're coming with you back to Israel. Naomi says again, Albanosai, no, my daughters. Again, this term of closeness and love and endearment, my daughters, no. Kimarli me'od mikem. Now, let's leave that phrase untranslated just for a moment. But Naomi says to them, no. Don't come back with me. And at that moment, there is an immediate effect of Naomi's words. Because Batishak Arpa Lechamosa, Arpa changed her mind at that moment. Remember, she had already said several times together with Rus, I'm coming back with you, Naomi. But at this moment, she changes her mind. She kisses Rus and she goes back home. She kisses Naomi and she goes back home. But Rus insists on remaining with Naomi. Verus Davkaba. But Rus cleaved to Naomi, and even though Arpad changes her mind at the last minute and decides to go back home, Rus remains with Naomi, and the rest of the story unfolds when Rus and Naomi return to Beislechem to Bethlehem. What happened at that moment? that separated the path of Arpa from Rus. What happened is, Arpa understood from the words that Naomi said that Naomi was blaming Arpa for what happened. She understood Rus's, Naomi's words that I did not translate. Kimarli ma'od mikem. Arpa translated those words as if to mean Naomi is saying, God has made my life bitter because of you. Arpa understood Naomi to say, You were not the right wives. For my sons. I appreciate your kindness, but you have brought this bitterness on all of us. And that's why you should go home. 
and you should not accompany me. That's what Arpa understood. Now, that's not what Naomi meant. And that's not what Rus heard. Naomi was grieving for them. What she said was, Ki marli ma'od mikem. I am bitter, Naomi says, because of what has happened to you. I feel bad for you. Not, God forbid, I feel, I blame you for what happened to me, but I grieve for what has happened to you. That's what Naomi meant. And by the way, that meaning of Naomi's words is clear from the text because that's exactly the verse where she refers to Arpa and Rus as Biti, my daughter, Benosai, my daughters. I love you and I grieve at your sadness. But Arpa didn't hear it that way. Arpa misunderstood. And she kissed Naomi to disengage from her. Now, Arpa's kiss was genuine. But it was not a kiss that moved them closer together. It was a kiss that began their disengaging from each other. Because Arpa decided, since Naomi is blaming her for what happened, Arpa would now move back home. And she would move on with her life. And she would begin a new life back in her home, back with her family, back with the privilege to which she had been born. But please hear this clearly. Arpa was fully prepared to follow Naomi back to Israel and to live a life of poverty on the margin of society with Naomi. She was prepared for that. But it didn't come from the deepest part of her. It didn't come at the moment that she felt that she was not being appreciated for her sacrifice. Because you know, Helping someone else is wonderful. Being connected and being devoted to someone else is wonderful. But you shouldn't have to sacrifice your own life to do it. Arpa had a choice. And the choice of sacrificing her future when it's not even going to be appreciated, there's got to be a limit to self-sacrifice. Arpa's decision was a very reasonable and defensible position. It is the position that I think would be taken by not average better than average people. She wanted to accompany Naomi, but there is a limit. Even in Jewish law, there is a concept of chayecha kodmin. My own life has to come first. There's a limit to how much I can sacrifice my own life, my own future for someone else. Arpa went home. Verus Dovkabo, but Rus cleaved to Naomi. She did not leave. She was willing to sacrifice her future. She was willing to sacrifice her position. Why? Because she connected to a godly sense of chesed, of kindness. There was something about Naomi 
that Rus had absorbed from their years together that had become a part of Rus. It came from inside her. It was an essential part of her character, her being. She had incorporated God's model of kindness, of chesed, in its most potent form. Even if it meant that she would live a life of poverty. Even if she meant even if it meant that she would live a life on the margins of the society to which she was traveling that might not welcome her with open arms. So, Arpa left. Rus clung. Arpa is good. She was a good woman. She was better than many. Rus was great. And we meet and learn about the two of them because it's important for us to recognize and respect good. But at the same time, we are to strive for great. Even if we don't reach it, the striving for greatness, for excellence, is valuable and dear to God. This is the opening of the Book of Ruth. Near the end, bracketing the main story, this theme is repeated with another minor character. So, I'm sure you've heard the name John Doe. John Doe is a placeholder name for a person whose identity is either unknown or anonymous. Now, the usage of this name, John Doe, to stand for someone's name comes from a court case in England in the 14th century when it was used to refer to an anonymous defendant and that became a famous case. It was frequently quoted and that name, John Doe, has been used ever since to refer to a person, but we're not going to mention their name. It's fascinating that every single country in the world has its own version of a name that's used for this purpose, a placeholder name. In Spanish-speaking countries, Juan Perez is the name that's used. In Canada, in certain places, Georges Raymond or Joe Blow is used for this purpose. Another example that's very much in the news today is Jane Roe. Roe v. Wade, the famous case about abortion that might be overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Roe, Jane Roe, is a fictional name because during the trial, her identity was, was anonymous. Her name was actually Norma McCovey. Wade refers to Henry Wade, who was the te Texas district attorney who was suing Jane Roe. Okay. Placeholder names used in every legal system. The oldest placeholder name is in our narrative, say for Ruth, the Book of Ruth. And from the Book of Ruth, throughout the Talmud, within Jewish law, throughout Jewish literature, till this day, Ploni Almoni is a placeholder name, the original first ever placeholder name, Ploni Almoni. And we meet Ploni Almoni near the end of the Book of Ruth.
And it goes like this. Naomi and Ruth return to Beis Lechem. They are poor. Rus goes to collect food in a field that belongs to Boaz. Rus and Boaz meet each other. And Boaz says to Rus, we discussed this a few weeks ago in a different context, Boaz says, I am willing to perform the mitzvah of Geulas Karka, of the redemption of fields. Naomi and her family had owned fields. They were wealthy before they left Israel, but those fields had been sold to satisfy creditors in the intervening years. That's why Naomi was impoverished. So Boaz says, I'm willing to fulfill the mitzvah to redeem the fields, to buy them back and return them to your possession so that you and Naomi, so that Naomi and Rus will be able to support yourselves. You won't be impoverished anymore. But he says, I am not the closest relative. This mitzvah the first, the right of first refusal goes to the closest relative. So Boaz says to Rus, tomorrow morning, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to meet with the closer relative. If he won't do it, I will do it, but I have to ask him first. Uboaz Allah Hashar. The next morning, Boaz went to the gate of the city where the court was in session. Vayeshev Shom, and he sat there as if in court. This was going to be a judicial hearing. Vihine Hagoel over Ashediber Boaz, and he sees the Goel, this closer relative, walk past Vayomer, and Boaz says to him, Surushvapo Ploni Almoni, Ploni Almoni, come sit down here. I want to talk to you about something. I have a legal matter to discuss with you. Ploni Almoni. Well, the story goes on. Boaz presents this proposal. Ploni Almoni, you're the closest relative. You have the right of first refusal. Ploni Almoni says, no, no, thank you. I'm not going to do it. Fine. Boaz says, I will do it. Boaz buys back the fields. Boaz marries Ruth, and they live happily ever after. Ploni Almoni. Ploni Almoni? Why is he referred to by this placeholder name? Why is his name protected, hidden? We know his name. His name is Tov, literally means good. Tov was the brother of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Boaz was a nephew, so Tov was a closer relative. But we know his name. Why not say, Tov, come here and sit down. I want to talk to you. Why use this placeholder name? Okay, so the common answer to this question is that if the Megillah, the, the book of Ruth, the author of the book of Ruth, who, by the way, was the prophet Shmuel, Samuel, if he would have used the name Tov and identified this person, it would have been Lashon Hara. It would have been speaking negatively about somebody. And there's no constructive purpose. Why mention the name of someone in a negative light? And by the way, this is a really important principle. We don't reveal anything negative about a person. We don't speak negatively about a person unless there should be some overriding necessary constructive purpose. But otherwise, that's Lashon Hara speaking negatively about another person. To mention that the name of this person is Tov would be a violation of Lashon Hara. Okay, that's the common answer. We don't use his name. We use the placeholder name. Ploni Almoni, let me ask you a question. But he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, it's one thing if he was a Russia, if he was a wicked person. So you don't want to mention his name. There's no purpose to mentioning his name. But he didn't do anything wrong. 
He wasn't a what, Russia. There are worse, there are people that do much worse things whose names are explicitly mentioned in the Torah, throughout the Torah. He didn't take the opportunity to perform this mitzvah. Okay, but he didn't do a sin. He didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't evil. Says Rabbi Yisachar Friend. He was timid. What he did was shameful. You have the opportunity to do a mitzvah and you just let it pass? This person lacked courage. He lacked boldness. And consequently, he fell to anonymity. He was a good man. His name was Tov Good. He was a good man. But he was not great. Boaz was great. The name Boaz, Boaz, strength is coming. Valor is coming. Boldness is coming. There's an opportunity to do something magnificent and Boaz seizes it. Plony lets it pass by. He's good, but he's not great. And because of that, we don't even mention his name. Boaz was a person whose greatness lie in his drive to look for an opportunity to help someone else. To look for and grab an opportunity, not to be good, but to be great. And this characteristic is not only a theme of the book of Ruth, so that we have the contrast between Plony and Boaz, just as we have the contrast between Arpa and Rus. It's also the theme of Shavuos. The essence of Shavuos is not just that we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. It is that we should develop within ourselves an enthusiasm for studying and observing the Torah that God gave us. We learn about Plony and we learn about Arpa in order to provide the contrast with Rus and Boaz. It's okay to be good, Tov, but we should strive to be great. I want to share one last subject with you. What I'm going to share with you now is astounding. You may not believe me when I say this, so feel free to look up the psukim, the verses yourself. And the question that I'm going to pose is so bizarre, and the fact that it is even a question is even more bizarre. And the question is, when is Shavuos. I know, it sounds crazy, right? Everybody knows when Shavuos is. This year, it's Saturday night and Sunday and Monday outside of Israel. On the Hebrew calendar, Sunday is the sixth day of Sivan. Tonight is the beginning of the Jewish day on the calendar. Tomorrow is the fourth of Sivan. Friday is the fourth, Shabbos is the fifth, Sunday is the sixth, Shavuos is the sixth, and outside of Israel, two days, the seventh. Monday is the seventh of Sivan. It's not so simple. And it's even crazier than you think. <laughs> 
because Shavuos is the only holiday in the Torah whose date is not mentioned. Nowhere in the Torah does it say what date Shavuos is. Pesach, we know. The 15th of Nisan. Sukkos, we know. Rosh Hashanah, we know. Yom Kippur, we know. Every other date, we know. No date is mentioned on Shavuos. The only thing, the only verse that identifies when Shavuos is, is a verse that says it is on the 50th day of the Omer. From the second day of Pesach, we count 49 days. And the 50th day is Shavuos. Okay, well, that's not so bad, right? All you have to do is count to 50. You know when Shavuos is, right? No, <laughs> that's also not so simple. <laughs> it's just, I mean, how is it possible that we do not know when Shavuos is? And wait till you hear what we do know. All right. So let's try to figure this out. Let's try to figure it out from the narrative that we're going to read on Sunday morning, the narrative surrounding the God's revelation in Sinai and the Aseris Adibros, God speaking the Ten Commandments to the entire Jewish people. That narrative is in the parsha of Yisro. We read that on Sunday morning in Shul. Let's try to look at that narrative and figure out when Shavuot should be. Torah says as follows. Vayomer Hashem Moshe. Hashem says to Moshe, Lech el ha'am, go to the people, v'kidashtem, and sanctify them, purify them. Hayom, today, the rabbis in the Talmud say today means the fourth day of Sivan, which is today, meaning today and tomorrow, Friday. Sanctify them today, hayom, umachar, and the next day. So this year would be Friday and Shabbos. And be ready on the morning of the third day. Because on the morning of the third day, I, God, will descend to Mount Sinai and reveal myself and speak the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments. All right. That sounds pretty simple, right? Prepare on Friday and Saturday, and Sunday morning, the sixth day of Shavuos, the sixth day of Sivan, is Shavuos. I'll reveal myself, Ten Commandments. And that is, in fact, what we do. <laughs> this Sunday morning, we will read in Shul this passage about the Ten Commandments. Please join us. So you would assume that on the 6th of Sivan is the anniversary of God speaking to the entire Jewish people on Mount Sinai on the 6th day of Sivan. And that's the day, first day of Shavuos. And that is what we observe. All right? Simple. Yes? Clear? Yes? No. It's not simple. <laughs> and it's not clear. Because what I quoted to you is the opinion of the rabbis in the Talmud. Reb Yossi Omer, but Rabbi Yossi disagrees. How is it possible to disagree about which day this happened? I don't know. But somehow Reb Yossi disagrees. Reb Yossi Omer, Reb Yossi says, Yom Echad Hosif Moshe Midaito. Moshe decided we need one more day to prepare. It's amazing. God says, prepare on Friday and Shabbos and Sunday morning, Ten Commandments. Moshe, according to Rabbi Yossi, Moshe says, um, excuse me, God, we need one more day. Let's, let's push it off one day. And God agreed with Moshe. Which means that God revealed himself in Mount Sinai, not on Sunday, the 6th of Sivan, but on Monday, the 7th of Sivan.
And here's the thing. The Talmud says, the halacha, the law, is like Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi is correct. So, so that means <laughs> that we are observing Sunday as the first day of Shavuos, as the anniversary of the revelation at Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, when in fact, according to the final opinion in the Talmud, it didn't happen that day. It happened the next day, on the seventh of Sivan. So what are we celebrating on Sunday if we're not celebrating the anniversary of God revealing himself at Mount Sinai and speaking the Ten Commandments? So, one of our classic commentators on the Shulchan Aruch, known as the Magan of Ram, gives an answer that makes it more difficult to understand. The Magan of Ram says, this is a hint to observing two days of Yom Tov. Because the actual event that Shavuos commemorates happened not on the first day of Shavuos, but on the second day of Shavuos. Now, we keep going further down this rabbit hole because that answer is impossible to understand because, yes, we outside of Israel observe two days of Yom Tov, but in Israel they only observe one day of Yom Tov. You mean to tell me in Israel and during the time when the base of Mavis, the Holy Temple, was standing in Jerusalem and, the, and everyone only observed one day of Yom Tov, mean to tell me they missed the day? They missed it completely. They observed the 6th of Sivan. Nothing happened that day. And the big event, Revelation at Sinai, is a weekday. <laughs> and more fundamentally, if the actual revelation at Sinai occurred on the 7th of Sivan, Monday, the Ten Commandments were spoken by God to the Jewish people on the 7th of Sivan, Monday. What are we celebrating on Sunday? What are we going to do in Shul on Sunday? What is it that we're celebrating on the first day of Yom Tov? So I want to share with you an answer given by Rabbi Yudha Amital, and it is a very deep and magnificent answer. Shavuos is not the holiday that celebrates the content of the Torah. Shavuos celebrates the contact, the connection between God and the Jewish people. God spoke and the entire Jewish people heard God speak directly. But remember what the Talmud said. Yom Echad Hosef Moshimidaito. So the moment of that closeness was not on Sunday, it was on Monday, the second day, the seventh of Sivan. So what happened on the sixth of Sivan? On the 6th of Sivan, remember, Yomechad Hosef Moshimidaito. God said, prepare on, this year would fall on Friday and Saturday, and I am going to appear at Mount Sinai Sunday morning. Moshe added a day. Okay, Moshe added a day for whatever reason. God agreed, and God revealed himself on Monday, the 7th. What happened on the 6th? What happened on the 6th of Sivan is that God considered us worthy. God considered us ready to receive God's presence at Mount Sinai. It didn't actually happen because Moshe decided to push it off. Why Moshe did that is a separate discussion. But God decided that we were ready. That means that what we celebrate on Sunday, the 6th of Sivan, which is for us the first day of Shavuos, is not the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. 
It is the fact that God looked at us and said, we are worthy to receive God's presence. Avinoam Hirsch is a teacher in Israel. And he told the following story. He said in school, in his class, he gives a certificate of excellence to one student each month. But by mistake, one month, he sent the notification that he was giving the certificate to the wrong student. He sent it to their parent. In this case, it was a boy being raised by a single mother. And the message that he sent was, it was a standard boilerplate message, bravo, congratulations, Mazel tov. your son is receiving a certificate of excellence. By the time the teacher realized his mistake that he had sent this to the wrong mother, the wrong family, He had already received a response from this mother. And this mother wrote back to him and said in an email, you do not understand what your message did for me. It is the happiest thing that has happened to me all month. And Avinoam tells this story. I realized what's going to happen. Her son did not get the certificate. Her son's going to go home without a certificate. She's written to me that this is the greatest thing that's happened to her all month. And then her son's going to come home and say it was a mistake. It's going to crush her. But not only that, the mistake that he made was so bad, so serious, because this mother of the student to whom he sent this email not only was not the best student that month, he was the worst. In fact, that very day, Avinoam had kicked him out of class because he was disturbing class, which he often did. He was the worst student in the class. And by accident, he sent to his mother this notice that your son is receiving the certificate of excellence. So what's he going to do? So here's what he did. At the end of class, before the boy went home, he called this boy over to him and he said to him, I want you to listen carefully. I'm going to do something. I've never done this before. This month, I am going to lend you the certificate of excellence. You don't deserve it. Your behavior in class is atrocious. You do not deserve this certificate. But I believe if I lend this certificate to you, I believe you have it within you to live up to it next month. Now, when this boy heard that the teacher had told his mother that he had received a certificate of excellence. This boy was so excited and he said, just last night, my mother was crying because I make her so sad because I get in trouble. And she talked to one of my other teachers and they said, I'm always getting kicked out of class and causing trouble. And my mother is so sad last night and she was crying and she's so upset with me. And he said, I'm so grateful to you that you're willing to do this for me. Even though it's alone, I'm not going to let you down. And throughout the following month, this student who had been at the bottom of the class who had always ruined and disturbed the class, who was being sent out almost every day, he turned into an angel. 
the guidance counsel in the school came to this teacher and said, what happened to this student? I mean, he must be on some kind of drugs because he's a different person. And the teacher says to this guidance counselor, no, he's not on drugs. He's on something much stronger. It's called trust. That is what we reached on the sixth day of Sivan this Sunday. After centuries of slavery amidst the immorality of Egypt, we worked on ourselves we elevated ourselves as we traveled geographically from Egypt to Sinai. We traveled, we ascended spiritually in holiness and in morality until we reached the level where God said to us, you have earned my trust. You are worthy of hearing from me directly the Ten Commandments. It's going to be delayed for a day for another reason, but you're worthy. I say you're worthy. You are worthy on the first day, on Sunday, on the 6th of Sivan. You are worthy, God says to the Jewish people, to receive my most precious gift, to receive the Torah. We have to ask ourselves that same question as we approach Shavuos this year. If we have raised ourselves so that God can look at us and say, we are worthy this Sunday to receive the Torah anew, We have to ask ourselves the question, have we earned the right this year to celebrate Shavuos on the 6th of Sivan? Well, there's still a couple of days left. And I make this suggestion to myself, and if it helps you to listen, feel free to listen. I need to work on myself between now and then to try to make it so that by the time I get to Sunday morning, the 6th of Sivan, that I will reach that level where God will be able to say, okay, maybe you're not completely worthy, but at least I trust that you're trying to get there. And that is what we celebrate this Sunday on the 6th of Sivan. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening, a beautiful and restful Shabbos, and a fantastic, inspiring, uplifting, ascendant Shavuos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.